Well, as you can uh, see with this new uh, sermon graphic up here, we're starting something new here. And as we begin our time, I want to um, just maybe throw out a question that I think our youth kind of discussed and, and bantered about last night. But if you, if you could paint a picture of what the happy life would look like, the blessed life would look like, what would that life look like to you? What would be the ideal life that you look to create? What would be the essence of a deep down, just earth cannot shake that kind of a happiness? What would be the ideal picture of that kind of a life of happiness and of blessedness, of satisfaction and contentment? When I was growing up, when I was in elementary school, I had a very clear picture of what that looked like. It meant that I would be uh, rich and famous. My dream when I would play make-believe is that I'd be living in my house. Uh, I, would, I would be playing around in my house in Reston, Virginia. But it wouldn't be my own house. It would be a, a mansion that had elevators to take me to the different floors of my home because I was very rich. I was rich because I was the starting shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles. But not only was I rich because of that, I was also rich because I was the wide receiver for the Washington Redskins. And I was also the starting shooting guard for the Washington Bullets at the time, the Washington Bullets. I was filthy rich. I was married to a beautiful woman. Her name was Wonder Woman from the old TV series. She was my wife. I had maids and servants at my beck and call. Whatever I wanted to eat, I would tell the person across the counter and they would bring it to me. This was the life. It was the beautiful life. It was the happy and blessed life for me. Riches, comfort, security, pleasure, everything that I needed was at my disposal. That was a happy life for me. What about for you? What do you think would make your life so happy that nothing could take that happiness away? What would make my life so blessed that all around people would not only envy me, but the earth could not take this kind of a happiness away from me? A deep down kind of contentment. What would that look like for you? Well, that's what Jesus came to address in probably the greatest sermon that has ever been recorded in the history of the world. We're going to look at a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, and arguably one of the greatest pieces of, of, of religious teaching as well as any kind of teaching for that matter. It's found in the, in the Gospel of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. People call it the, just the, the magnum opus of Jesus' teaching. A beautiful, beautiful description. Even people who don't go to church, who are not followers of Jesus, have found phrases from the Sermon on the Mount and incorporated them into their everyday vocabulary. Things like do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. The golden rule. Things like turn the other cheek or go the extra mile. These kinds of sayings are found in the Sermon on the Mount. And so even if you've never heard of the Sermon on the Mount, it is most likely that you have heard of things and teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. Here's why it's one of the greatest sermons ever. It's interesting because there's a, some of us have been to a conference called Youth Specialties. It's a massive conference that trains and equips and encourages youth workers throughout America and uh, other nations. At this one particular conference some years ago, there was a speaker who was invited to speak. His name was Shane Claiborne. And at the time, he was the it thing. In Christian circles, he was doing the circuit, doing the tour. He basically took a vow of poverty and gave up his salary, gave up his riches and just lived in communal lifestyle and just very frugally lived as a poor person to live out the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. So he was invited to speak at this conference called Youth Specialties where all of these great speakers come. And so as the brochures were going out, people decide I'm going to come because I want to hear Shane Claiborne speak and they paid lots of money to get there. 
And when he got there, he stood up on stage and he says, you guys are youth workers. You know, crazy youth workers. When you come to our youth meetings, they have all these crazy games that they play and it's high energy. And so he says, you guys need to be entertained. And so watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand up on stage and I'm going to breathe fire. They're like, what is this guy talking about? So he got a torch and he put something on it and he literally blew fire out of his mouth and, on, and, and into the air. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. He's like, I'm going to do it again. So he did it again. And people were like on the edge of their seats. They're so excited. They'd never seen anything like this at youth specialties, let alone at a Christian gathering. He says, now I'm going to do something even more amazing. They're like, what is he going to do? I'm going to preach to you the greatest sermon that the world has ever heard. And he invited them to open their Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And he began reading the Sermon on the Mount. He ended the Beatitudes and he kept on going with the first 13. Finished that section, finished chapter 5, and people were like, when's he going to stop? Got to chapter 6. He kept on going. Hey, surely he'll stop at chapter 6. So he started chapter 7. It's chapters 5 through 7. He's still going on. They're like, dude, we're running out of time. And he finishes chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, thus ends the greatest sermon the world has ever heard. Then he walked off the stage. People are like, what the nasty just happened? Some people were angry. They're like, I paid a lot of money to hear Shane Claiborne speak. I could have had my friend stand up there and read Matthew 5 through 7. The organizer of this event, he had slotted 45 minutes for Shane to come and talk, and he's got 20 minutes left. He's like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do for 20, 20 minutes? So he runs out on stage trying to figure out what he's going to say. And in that place, he realized that he didn't need to say anything. Because upon hearing the Sermon on the Mount, People are just on their faces praying. People are, some are crying, some are sobbing, some are repenting. The greatest sermon ever heard. And if this is indeed the constitution of the Christian faith, then what we're going to look at for the next 10 weeks, the Beatitudes are the preamble, the beginning part, but the most famous section of the most famous sermon that the world will ever know. We're going to look at that beginning today. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. If you have your Bible um, please turn there because I, I want you to see this. Um, if you don't have it, you could either look on with somebody else or it's going, to be, uh, it's going to be up on the screen. It would be better if you could see it in your Bible because I want to show you some of the, well, maybe one of the poetic elements of this great, um, great, great teaching. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you. 
persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't say that's what it's called in the Bible anywhere, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the great St. Augustine St. Augustine decided to call this the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because it says in verse 1, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Very clever of St. Augustine to say this. Because he was on the mountain, the sermon will thus be called the Sermon on the Mount. Very creative, very clever. Herein, this sermon is called the Sermon on a Stool. This is basically what he's saying. So here we go, he's talking, and it says, his disciples, well, he sat down. Okay, so whenever a rabbi would teach, he would sit down. Okay? And the disciples would come to him and they would gather around the rabbi. It was, not, it was not customary for a lot of people to come and hear a rabbi teach. Well, if you're a disciple, you're part of an inner circle. And you had to ask the rabbi, could I follow you? Could I watch the way you live? Could I sit under your teaching? But Jesus was different. He chose them to follow him. And so here they come, and they're sitting around. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. So the disciples are sitting around, and they're the main audience. But you see something else here. In verse 1, it says, The crowds were coming to him. Verse uh, chapter 4 begins to talk about the kinds of crowds that were coming. But here you see kind of a, a concentric circle audience here. Jesus is talking to the disciples, saying, this Sermon on the Mount is for you. Okay? This describes life in the kingdom of heaven. This is life for the people of God who follow me, who put their trust in me. This is for you. It is instruction for them. But at the same time, as the crowds are coming, it is an invitation for them to eavesdrop in on what Jesus is saying to them in order that they might long for what he's talking about to them. You know how you do this sometimes, right? You're uh, talking to one person, but you really want someone else to hear. Like you're at home and you really, you know, you, your children have been giving you a really hard time this week. So you say to them, to one of them, the oldest, say, Manny, Manny, come on. It, you, it's been a really hard week. Your brother and sister have been really difficult. They haven't been sleeping. You haven't been sleeping. It's been really hard. Can you just please, please, I haven't slept all week. Can you just put yourselves to bed? As you're saying that, you're really wanting your spouse in the other room to overhear so that they might come back to you and say, hey, you know what? You've had a hard week. Why don't you go and get your movie, get your massage, get your manicure and, and go on? Right? That's kind of what's happening here. Jesus is talking to his disciples, but he's allowing the crowds to overhear. And as he speaks to them, what is the invitation that he's giving? He begins to talk about the blessed life. The truly happy life, the kind of happiness that the world can never take and the things that cannot be shaken by whatever might happen to you. As he's talking about that, the crowds of lame, sick, diseased are coming and they're hearing and they're overhearing in the hopes that they might decide to choose to be a follower of Jesus. As we look into the Beatitudes, three things that we see, the Beatitudes show us three things. The first, it shows us what life in the kingdom looks like. It shows us what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. Each of the gospel writers, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are writing with a different perspective. They're writing with a different end goal in mind, with a different purpose in mind. They're all biographies of Jesus. But they're all writing to a different audience and for a specific purpose. So generally speaking, for the example, the Gospel of Mark was written to believers in the Roman world who are suffering persecution, written to show that Jesus Christ is the suffering servant. And so Mark talks a lot about things. Jesus came to suffer, to give his life, and to die. Luke, the doctor, had access to lots of different people, to poor, the lame, to women. And he records lots of stories about people like that to show that Jesus is the Son of Man, and he came for every kind of person. John's Gospel records the seven I am statements of Jesus. I'm the bread of life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the sheep. I'm the gate uh, for the sheep. Talking about these seven I am statements, ultimately wanting is here to identify the I am of Jesus with the great I am in Exodus to show that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. And Matthew was written to show that Jesus Christ is the King that was promised from the Old Testament. You see that from the very beginning, Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus traces his family all the way through the line of the kings. That Jesus is the true king who was promised. Chapter 2, when Jesus' birth account comes, who's angry? Everyone is, is, is happy. The king is being born, but one person is angry. Who is angry? Well, it's the king, King Herod. He's angry because he's going to be replaced in the hearts of people, or so he fears. In chapter 3, John the Baptist comes, and he comes preaching, and his message is, repent, for the kingdom is near. Chapter 4, Jesus comes and he comes teaching. He says the same message, repent for the kingdom is here. And then as we see in chapter 5, he begins to show the nature of the kingdom by teaching, blessed is the life of those in the kingdom. If you look at what it says in your Bible, if you look in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This was a popular, popular way of doing Hebrew poetry, where the first and last things are brackets, saying that everything in between those things form one unit. Okay? And if you want to know what that unit is all about, you look at the brackets. Okay? The first and last, verse 3 and verse 10, say the exact same thing at the end. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is making clear, he's trying to explain the blessed life, but he's also explaining to us that this is what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And from the outset, as you begin to read the Beatitudes, you begin to realize how diametrically opposed the Beatitudes of Jesus are with the Beatitudes of this world. What does the world think the blessed life is? What does the world think it is to be happy? And to be blessed. Instead of saying poor in spirit, they blessed are the rich. For they've got everything. They can buy their comfort. They can buy their security. Blessed are those who never mourn. Blessed are those who don't cry, who don't show weakness. Because to show weakness, to show vulnerability, is to put yourself at the mercy of other people. Blessed are not the meek, but blessed are the aggressive. Because nice guys finish last. You've got to climb your way, step on people to get to the top. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. For unrighteousness, for they'll be satisfied. Hunger and thirst for the world's wine and the world's food. And maybe if you have that stuff, you can become the most interesting man in the world. So stay thirsty, my friends. This is life in the kingdom of the world. Blessed are those who are not merciful, but who are merciless. Because they'll get the things that they want. Blessed are those who are not pure in heart. 
but who go and do whatever they want to do because those are the kind of people that Hollywood praises, the kind of people that make it on the cover of Entertainment Weekly and People Magazine and Us and all of these magazines. Blessed are the, not the peacemakers, but the ones who fight and are wanting more and more because they're the ones who are in the headlines of the news. Blessed are those not who are persecuted because of righteousness, but blessed are those who are just wishy-washy in your faith. Just toe the line. Sit on the fence because then you'll never be persecuted. You can have the best of both worlds. And here comes Jesus teaching. And from the very time Jesus opens his mouth, we begin to realize, holy cow, Jesus and the kingdom that he came to bring and the teaching that he came to bring is completely countercultural when you compare it with the kingdom of this world. Did you know that if you're part of the kingdom, of heaven, that there should be a marked difference in the way that you and I live when people of the world look at our lives. And the most probable explanation, if there is no difference, is that maybe we think we've bowed our knee to the king, but we, really we haven't. I mean, this is what Jesus is saying. That's not, I'm not making this stuff up. That's what Jesus is saying. If you really are part of a different kind of kingdom, then the world will take notice. You and I know this. If you come, if your parents are immigrants, if you're an immigrant, this is part of the, the, the ethos of the show, Fresh Off the Boat, isn't it? About how a Chinese, a Taiwanese family comes and lives life in a culture that is completely different from the way that they live. The first show, I think, when he comes in, Eddie Huang is a Taiwanese guy, and he brings his lo mein to lunch. Who does that, right? Well, in China and Taiwan, everybody does that. But he comes and he brings his food, and as soon as he opens it up, all of his Caucasian friends are like, Ew, what is that? What is that? Oh, nasty. Oh, let's get out of here. He brought worms and chocolate. Let's get out. And so they move to a different table. And Eddie's like, what's the deal? They're like, that's nasty Chinese food. To Eddie, it's just food. I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. It's food. And the question that people always end up asking people like Eddie is, where are you guys from? Because when you live a counterculture, people ask, where are you from? And if the world looks at the way that we live life, inevitably the question they ask is, where are they from? And the answer that should be crystal clear at the end of the day by observing our lives long enough is they should realize, ah, they're from heaven. They were born in heaven. They're a different kind of people. Because the way that they live is different. Guys, the ethic of kingdom lifestyle is completely countercultural to the ways of life in this world. And the more you try to hold on to your own identity in the midst of a culture that is different, the more opposition you're going to face. So the problem and the question that confronts people like Eddie and his family members is how much do we hold on to our ethnic background? How much do we hold on to who we truly are? And how much do we abandon that and just try to become like the rest of culture? I tell you what, that's a challenge that you and I are facing too. Every day as we live life in this world. Am I going to hold on to the culture of my birth as a child of God in the kingdom of God? Am I going to demonstrate kingdom ethic? Because knowing that if I do, I'm going to be persecuted by the world that lives that I live in. There will be opposition from people who look at me differently. Or will I put that aside and begin to adopt the culture of the new world that I'm living in. The world that is opposed 
to the life of Christ in me. The Beatitudes are explaining this is what kingdom life looks like. It is completely different. It is completely countercultural. Listen, the way that we live ought to be so countercultural. The way that we talk, the way that we do business, in a sense, yeah, we have to have business principles and savvy, be shrewd as snakes, innocent as dust, but the way that we interact with people should be different. Our motivation for why we do things should be different. The reason we talk to people, the way we interact with the opposite gender should be different. The way that we see people, the way that we are are motivated, our thoughts should be different. The people that we think about dating, the way that we make decisions, the people that we marry, all of these things, kingdom ethic is different from the ways of the world. We don't learn from Hollywood. We learn in Jerusalem. That's what one pastor says. We don't learn love from Hollywood. We learn love in Jerusalem. We learn love at Calvary. This is where kingdom ethic is put to the test because it ought to show a difference in the way that we live. Things that we do with our friends, things that we do in our spare time. If people that we're we're smoking with, people that we're drinking with, don't see a difference in us, and Jesus is saying there's got to be something different. There's got to be a countercultural ethic. We don't live that way. Kingdom lifestyle is different. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's making it crystal clear that if you've come into the kingdom, there's going to be a difference in the way that you live life. The first thing that the Beatitudes show us, it shows us this is life in the kingdom. Second thing that we see, this is the life of what a true Christian looks like. He's not saying this is what you need to do in order to become a Christian. He's saying if you're a follower of Christ, then your life will look like this. In time, your life will begin to look like this. And it is completely different. Listen to what it says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what poor in spirit means? Basically, if you're poor... Blessed are the poor. What does it mean to be poor? It means that I know that I I don't have anything, and I know that I don't have anything. To be poor in spirit means that you believe with all of your heart, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. That's what poor in spirit means. It means I'm bankrupt. I got nothing in my account to bring before God. I don't come to God and say, you owe me something. I don't come before people and say, you know what? You owe me something. We don't. We come bankrupt and realizing that we're needy. They think this is ethic in the kingdom of heaven. This is what a true Christian looks like. We don't go around demanding our rights from people. It says we know that we've got nothing. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? He's talking, and most would agree, that he's talking about we mourn over our sins. That's your question. Do you mourn over your sins? The last time you sinned. Did you mourn over that? Not because oh, I feel icky, I feel dirty. Not because I'm going to get caught. Not because of what if my parents find out. Not because what if my, my husband finds out. Not because of any of these things. Not because, oh my gosh, I feel so dirty. But you mourn because you break the heart of God. As blessed are those who mourn. Instead of covering up our sin and, and giving excuses for why we sin, do you mourn over your sin? Jesus is saying this is what Christians do. We mourn. Blessed are the meek. There are meekness when we realize that I have been shown mercy. How do you interact with those who can give you nothing? How do you interact with the last, the least, the lost, the the, the broken parts of society? How do you interact with people like that? How do you interact with the homeless? How do you view the homeless? How do you view those who are sick? How do you view those on the outskirts of society? Blessed are the meek. 
you meek with them? Are you humble with them? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Christian, do you hunger and thirst to be righteous? To be like Jesus. The songs of our day talk a lot about the things we do for Jesus. The songs of old used to say, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be holy. I want to be like Christ. Do we long for that within our lives? As a follower of Jesus Christ, do you long for holiness in your life? And as what can I do in order to to create a, a sense of holiness and a longing for that? Or do you push the boundaries as far as you can and say, well, I'm still within the bounds and realm of what's acceptable within Christian circles? You're a follower of Christ. If you're a real Christian, you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he says, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. The, the, purpose of the, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is not to induce as much guilt in as short a period as possible. Let's say this is, what the, this is what a believer will look like. And if you're not these things, then maybe you've been mistaken into thinking that because you come to church, because you say the right things, that you're a follower of Christ. He's saying, listen, if people watch our lives long enough, then they're going to begin to see the blessed life rising up within us. And this is what it looks like. A purity of heart. You fight for that purity, and when you cannot stand, you fall on him because you know that he's your hope and stay. Do we long for purity of heart within our lives? Do we do we long for do we make peace? Or are we okay having all these loose ends of broken relationships everywhere? And we're content to walk into service and say, you know what, as long as they sit on the opposite side of the room, then I'm okay. As long as I don't see them, then I'm okay. Do you fight for reconciliation and long for peace to be made? Do you build bridges instead of burning them? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. It says, if we walk the walk of Jesus, in time, persecution will come. Not because of we're annoying, because we stand up and we're, hey, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus. You're going to go to hell. If you... Not because of we're annoying, but because of righteousness. Because we do the right thing in a world that's doing the wrong thing will be persecuted. Jesus says this is what the Christian looks like. He's saying that person is truly blessed. How in the world is that blessed? How in the world does that give us a happiness that the world can't ever take away? Look at what he says will be your inheritance. That you'll be comforted a comfort for every brokenness, for every sickness, for every pain, for everything you've ever gone through. There'll be a comfort beyond measure. Says you will inher- this inheritance will blow away the minds of every rich person, of every rich person, of every rich dead benefactor. This is a mind-boggling inheritance. The earth will be yours. Says you will be filled to overflowing. A fill- Not just, here, I'll give you a couple here and there, all that you could imagine. You will be shown mercy for all of the things that we've done. For all the times we shouted, have mercy on me. God will pour mercy into your life. You will see God. My goodness, this one thing in and of itself would be enough. That we see God. Man, this is, yours is the kingdom of heaven. This is it. This is a truly blessed life. Something the world will never take from you. The world can never buy, can never steal, can never rob, can never destroy. 
your inheritance if you follow me. See, it's interesting because the first and last of these Beatitudes is the present tense. This is what you have now. You're in it if you trust it. But then the middle from verse 4 through 9, these are all future-oriented promises. That these things are coming. So you might not always feel like you're blessed in this life. But hang on and hold tight. Because the Beatitudes promise, along with the rest of Scripture, that your rescue is coming. There's a, uh, a ministry, I forget where exactly it's located. I think it's in Wisconsin or something like that. It's called the Shepherd's Home. Basically, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a foster home for children with Down syndrome. Those who've been abandoned, those who've been orphaned, children with Down syndrome are brought into the home. They're cared for, they're fed. And a lot of times the director of this home would take people on tour, people who want to volunteer at their ministry. So he'll do that. And he'll always show them the different places. And then he'll, at the end of the time, he'll say, do you know what the biggest, what the biggest maintenance issue is in our home? It's a strange question. People say, what? Our windows need to be cleaned every day. Why? Because at the end of the day, these kids with Down syndrome run to the window. They press their hands and their faces against it. And they say, is today the day? Is today the day that Jesus comes back? Is today the day that Jesus comes and makes all of these things right? The future hope and the promise of the Beatitudes is that a day is coming. It's coming. If you're part of the kingdom, that day's coming for you. You can press your hands against the window with hope, but that hope is not wishful thinking. It's a certain and unshakable hope that that day is coming. And the beauty of the kingdom, Jesus says the kingdom is here in chapter 4, but he says in chapter 6, pray your kingdom come. It's a here, but not yet here reality. The theologians say it's already here, but it's not yet here. It's here in part, but not yet fully here. That we see glimpses of it. One day, a mind-boggling kind of comfort is going to come to you. But right now, you could experience a foretaste of that comfort every time you mourn. Right now, you might not see God with everything that you want to see. And right now, you might see in part, a day is coming when you see Him fully. But as you seek purity of heart, you're going to see more and more of Jesus. You're going to see more and more of God in this life. And though you have not seen Him... You love him. That's what Peter writes. He says, right now, you might not have it all, but you can have a taste of it. So it's kind of like some of you, I, I don't go to Costco, so I, I go to Publix. And, and at Publix the other day, I was at the deli getting some low-sodium boar's head meat, the kind that Manny and Elijah like, because it doesn't have the black border around it. So I asked for half a pound of that meat, and they sliced it up and they said would you like to try is this a good size and i looked and i said this is perfect this is wonderful i broke off a piece i said manny do you want to try some of this and she ate it she's oh, so good daddy can i have more and so i broke off another piece and i gave it she said daddy i want more i want more i gave her the whole thing and she said that is so So I said, no, you, you can't have more because I've used it all. I've used it all. But wait until we get home because there's so much more 
when we get there. Right now, I can just give you a sample. But when we get home, there's so much more that you can never begin to dream. It's just a promise of the Beatitudes. It's a promise for those who are in the kingdom. You can have samples of it right now. But so much more and so much better is coming to you. That's the second thing. Last thing. Not only the Beatitudes show us the kingdom, not only does it show us what a true Christian is, but the Beatitudes show us Jesus. You ever wondered what Jesus looked like when you close your eyes to pray? You want to get a picture of Jesus? I had growing up in my home, in my house, some pictures of Jesus. There's the famous one that we had. It was almost looked like a Jesus yearbook picture. You know what I'm talking about? The one where he's not looking at the camera, but he's looking off in the side, not smiling, but got his beautiful skin. He's got his well-kept beard. He's got flowing hair and beautiful eyes and just looking in faithful trust at his father. I had that picture. There's another one where Jesus, at the end of his life, is kneeling and his hands are on a rock in the Garden of Gethsemane, looking up, and light shines down at him. And see, ah, oh, beautiful Jesus. Oh, such confident trust in the Father's will. If I went on Google to think about what other people think about when they see Jesus, I typed in, What does Jesus look like? And I saw some very interesting pictures. I saw African-American Jesus. And I've seen African-American pictures of Jesus in African-American churches before. But this one was different. Well, there was a couple that I saw. One was the yearbook picture of Jesus, except his face was, his skin was completely dark. And that was interesting. I never saw that before. But there's another one where Jesus, there was, it was a ripped Jesus. This Jesus had been working out. He had massive pectoral muscles. Arms were bulging out. And he had dreadlocks. And he was African-American. Like, man, the liberator. That's what they see Jesus to be. It was awesome. And I saw Korean Jesus. Have you seen Korean Jesus before? Oh, my gosh. He's cool. He looks just like you and me. It's beautiful. The, the best Korean Jesus picture I saw was Jesus wearing the ancient, you know, like you, you, you see um, maybe like some Korean calendars where the, of the ancient time when Korean grandfathers had the long beard like this and they wore the one-piece robe with a, with a different colored belt around them. So that's the Jesus I saw, the, the Korean Jesus. And he wore that and he had the pointy rice hat, the farmer's rice hat. You know what I'm talking about, right? He had that hat. Some of y'all know. You can Google it later. But that Jesus was walking on water, and Peter, the disciple, had the same attire on. His hat had fallen off because he'd fallen in the water, and Jesus was picking him up. You of little faith. He probably said, (laughs) But that's what I saw in the Korean Jesus. What does Jesus look like? What does Jesus look like? Tell you what. You want to see the clearest picture of Jesus. Here it is. Jesus was poor in spirit. He wasn't poor. He was poor in spirit. He was rich beyond measure, 1 Corinthians says. But for your sake and for mine, he became poor in order that we who were poor through him might be made rich. He who was in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became nothing. And he humbled himself even to the point of death. Jesus was poor in spirit. Jesus mourned. He didn't mourn over his own sins, but he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Because he saw the effects that sin had on a world and on a people that he loved. 
He wept over the sins of Jerusalem as he's walking on his, uh, was riding on his donkey in the triumphal entry. He wept over Jerusalem and over the sins of that nation, over the sins of that city. He was meek. He walked around in his grand announcement that I'm the king of the world. He rode on a baby donkey, dragging his feet to the cheers of the crowd. And he, so meek, so meek, that he allowed himself, he who was powerful, more strong than that African-American pecs bulging out Jesus, he was more strong than that. Yet silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned, bowing to the Father's will, he took the crown of thorns. He's the one who hungered and thirsted after righteousness so much more than he hungered and thirsted for anything else in this life. Satan said, here, here, 40 days you haven't eaten, but here, turn these, these rocks into bread and eat them. He was so focused on doing the will of God that his food was not these things. He would rather eat the food of doing the will of God than to eat the food of this world. And so thirsting for righteousness that he would rather drink the cup of the wrath of God than to dull the pain of the crucifixion by drinking the wine that was offered to him at the cross. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He was merciful. A bruised reed he would not break. And a bruised wick he would not snuff out. It says of him in Matthew's gospel. The most broken of people were comfortable around him. Adulterers and prostitutes and tax collectors and lepers and lame people. They all felt that they could have an audience with this Jesus because he was the merciful one. He was pure in heart, single-minded in his devotion, never wavering towards anything else but in his one desire to follow the will of God, even as it led him to a cross. He's the one who made peace, the ultimate bridge builder between us and God. And he says, this is the blessed life. And how was Jesus rewarded? Not with cheers, not with applause. Verse 10, he was persecuted for righteousness, nailed to a cross. And he says, herein lies the blessed life. Why would he do that? Why would he walk that path? Why would anyone seek to go down that road knowing that this is the end of it all? You know, for you and me, it makes sense, doesn't it? For you and me, it makes sense that we live out this kingdom ethic because of the, just the overflowing blessings that come with it in this life as well as in the life to come. But for Jesus, what motivated him? To lay down his life. To be beaten, to be bruised. To be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. What motivated him to do that? Bowing to the Father's will. He did it for you, and he did it for me, in order that we can have this inheritance, in order that we could be blessed, in order that we could know what it is to truly be happy and content in him. So the Beatitudes, you see, don't tell us these are the things you need to do to get in. We can't. This is what Jesus has done for you. And as he talks to his disciples, 
He's saying, this is your life. The reason I do it is for you. This is the blessed life. You know, the truly happy life, the truly blessed life cannot come apart from the only man who is truly blessed, and that's Jesus. The only way, the only way. You know this, I know this. We've proved it through experience. We've tried to find blessedness, happiness, and all kinds of things, and it keeps on leading us to another dead-end door. Jesus says, it's the only way you could have it. The only way you could have it is through me. And as the disciples hear, they understand, this is mine. But as the crowds over here, he extends this invitation. If this could be yours too, you would decide and choose for this Christ. Let's pray. In Matthew's gospel, there's only, well, there's three types of people. There's the disciples who have gone all in for Jesus. They're the religious leaders who have gone all in to fight against Jesus. And actually, Jesus says, there's only two kinds of people. Either you've gone all in for me or you've gone all in against me. And the crowds of people, every time Jesus would address them, he's saying, you've got to choose. You need to choose. I don't think as a pastor I do anyone a gift to make assumptions and to make you think that you're a Christian if there's no evidence in your life that there's not. You know what I'm saying? That's not right. I think a greater service would be to over-diagnose and cause us to really wrestle with this and say, is there fruit in my life? Is there fruit that I'm truly a Christian? Am I really, have I crossed the line and put my trust in Christ? If there's no evidence of transformation, if there's no love for Christ, no desire to live for Him, then maybe you've got to deeply think, am I really a child of God? Have I really put my trust in Christ? Again, I'm not trying to scare you, but I'm trying to get you to see with sobriety. This is Scripture's clear teaching that you will know a tree by its fruit. An apple tree is not going to produce watermelons and an orange tree is not going to produce peaches. You know a tree by its fruit. A good tree that has been regenerated by Jesus will have good fruit. But a tree that hasn't will continue to bear bad fruit. So let's examine our lives. Have you trusted Jesus? Have you laid down your life and say, I am not my own. I belong to you. That means I I want to live the life you want me to live and I will follow you. And true change comes because we understand that Jesus paid it all and that when he comes in, he works in us from the inside out. Let's take a moment to pray right now. Can we pray? Say, Lord Jesus, search my heart. Holy Spirit, show me, show me. Show me the truth about who I am. Show me the truth about who I am. I come to your x-ray table. Show me what my heart is. Is it my own or has it been surrendered to Jesus? Let's pray for a minute. He's really responding to God. Say, Lord, I need you. I need you. 
And if some of us are here and you realize I'm not a follower of Christ, but I want that, I want the blessed life, then you can put your trust in Jesus. You can say, Jesus, I need you. I realize that I've led my life and it's led me to dead ends. And today, at the end of all these broken dreams, I've come to you. You're the open door. I know that I've, I've messed up and I've blown it, but come into my life and be the forgiver of my sins and be the new Lord of my life. And you can pray that prayer. In a moment, I'm going to invite anyone that wants to, to do that in your heart. But let's really search our hearts. And for a minute, just pray to the Lord. Say, Lord, search me. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Let's pray together for a moment. Jesus in my life, not I've put my trust in Jesus before and I just need a renewal, but not, I need Jesus. I've never put my faith in him. I've come to church maybe. I've not come to church maybe. I've never come. It's my first time, but in your heart, you just know that what was being shared up here is what you need in life and it's Jesus that you need. And with our eyes closed as we continue to pray, if anyone feels like that, I'm not going to ask you to stand up or do anything like that. I just ask you to, to raise your hand from where you are, just quietly so that I can see you and so that uh, we can pray together later. that this blessed life so elusive in this world is available and is possible to us a glimpse of what one day will be our tangible inheritance and it's only made possible because of Jesus because he walked that path and he lived that life he died on the cross and then he rose again and still lives to bless us with the blessed life Lord we pray that you would help us to turn away from the things that harm and turn towards you more and more so that we might live in the blessed life and the glorious hope of Jesus in us. We thank you. Thank you for loving us. We can only love you. We can only change because you've loved us, because you've worked in us. We need you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
you could all uh, stand and we'll sing as a response to uh, 